Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Wild Enrichment Podcast, a podcast about zoos, aquariums, animal enrichment, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kyle Benton-Jones, zookeeper, animal lover, enrichment builder, and creator of wildenrichment.com. This is the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Enjoy. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Uh, today, uh, we are joined by a very special guest, uh, Sarah Bonzer-Blake. Uh, from Wild Welfare. Uh, She is the animal welfare field manager there. Uh, So thank you for joining the podcast, Sarah, and welcome. And thank you very much for having having me. It's very exciting to be here. Yeah, we were just saying we've, uh, you know, uh, we've collaborated a number of times and been emailing for probably the better part of two years now. So it's nice to actually uh, uh, meet virtually face to face, uh, which is good. So yeah, thanks again for agreeing to uh, come on the podcast. Wild Welfare is a is a nonprofit that I uh, absolutely love and I really like uh, working with when I get the opportunity. So um, this is uh, definitely one of those. So uh, maybe for people that don't know and haven't heard of Wild Welfare, um, can you give people a sort of a lowdown on what it is and uh, why it was started? Uh, yeah, so um, we are, as you say, non non for not for profit uh, charity, um, and we essentially are trying to drive forward animal welfare improvements um, for captive wild animals across the globe. Um, and we do that in a number of different ways. We uh, provide a lot of uh, practical support um, to facilities, and that could be zoos, aquariums, animal sanctuaries, anything like that. Um, we were very collaborative in our approach um, and we, we kind of work to try and get welfare to the forefront of all decisions made. Um, and, and we really think that that will have this massive impact. And we've certainly seen the, the impact that that has had over the years. And, um, and yeah, it all started, actually. Um, the idea for it was, was cooked up in a hotel in Cairo in Egypt. And um, the, the idea came across... Um, as a kind of quite organic thing um, because uh, my colleagues have kind of seen a lot of the needs that were out there in terms of uh, animal welfare knowledge and making that more accessible um, to more people and, um, and and making this kind of tangible difference uh, within facilities themselves. Uh, so it's all kind of cooked up from that idea uh, and we've certainly uh, snowballed since then. Uh, so this year is actually our 10 year anniversary, which is very exciting. Uh, so it's oh, been wow. That's great. yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it's been great to go for 10 years and for me to be part of it for some of those years. It's been very exciting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm sure it's uh, one of many great ideas cooked up in a uh, hotel in Cairo. That's uh, <laughs> an excellent backstory. But I, I love uh, um, mentioning bringing welfare to the sort of forefront of all decision making, because I think that's so important in especially for, you know, for all facility sizes, large and small, like it, you get such a trickle down effect with so many decisions if you don't have you know animal welfare at the forefront and someone at those decision making tables that is really there for animal welfare because you can't expect especially at larger institutions where there's so many things going on in so many different departments you can't expect every single person at that table to be thinking about that because that's not necessarily always their job but definitely getting that uh sort of decision making making uh stakeholder there and and getting them to think about that is yeah is uh, so important but um so i'd love to hear uh about how you got involved with wild welfare and you know your your background 
Uh, so me personally, uh, I was uh, an animal keeper for about a decade. I uh, worked in various uh, zoological collections as well as um, kind of dog kennels, animal sanctuaries. Uh, I used to work on a whale watching boat, which was good fun. Um, and before that, I was doing my degree in animal biology. And um, I got involved with wild welfare. It's quite a kind of long term story. But um, uh, years ago, in one of the facilities I was working in, um, they approached um, every all the keepers and kind of said um, that we are collaborating with this charity um, and we're trying to put together a kind of enrichment portfolio full of ideas um, to use around the world. And I was like, this sounds great. And I kind of took the idea, ran with it and put together this whole massive thing. Um, it was all colour coded and everything and um, uh, and then gave it to my boss who thought it was great. Um, she then sent it to Wild Welfare and um, before I knew it, it was being used across Asia, across Brazil, all that kind of thing. And I was like, this is really awesome. It's it's great to be having that, that impact. Um, and then fast forward a few years and I was traveling the world um, with my partner and we ended up in Vietnam because um, the people that I used to work with um, had messaged me saying that there's this um, uh, there's this charity again, Wild Welfare, uh, and also Animals Asia. They collaborated to put together this um, uh, opportunity to work in a facility in Vietnam for three months. Um, so I went out there and did that, and um, it was incredibly difficult, as you might imagine. Um, you see quite a few quite shocking things, um, but it was also incredibly rewarding. Some of the tangible impacts that we were making, the changes that we were making, the uh, the, the keepers that were really excited to input some of these changes, and then um, the animals that were clearly um, enjoying the changes that we were implementing. That was all in really um, impactful for me, certainly. Uh, so then after we finished traveling, uh, I came back, I got a job back in the UK, but all the animals that I'd met out in Asia, they were still kind of living in my head and kind of, I, I was kind of sat there going, I feel like I need to do more. Um, and eventually an opportunity for Wild Welfare um, uh, to um, actually work for them um, became available. And uh, it was a maternity cover position actually. Um, so I, I took a bit of a risk uh, by um, quitting a full-time job to take a part-time job, but um, no, it, it certainly worked out. And um, yeah, I've been with them ever since. I've absolutely loved it. It's a fantastic organization to work with. Oh, that's it. Yeah, that's that's a great story. Yeah, that's, uh, they, well, they definitely seem, uh, they have a huge impact and they definitely seem like a great, uh, a great um, organization. But um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, one thing that I, I definitely experience, and I'm sure you guys experience since you're more international and working in um, uh, some of those some of those places where, you know, animal welfare is a sort of up and coming um, topic. Uh, I, I typically work with a lot of uh, places in North America, and it's a little bit more uh, modernized, a lot of the thought processes. Um, and And it's definitely hard when you're working with a facility and it's just... Uh, typically people come to me for, you know, enrichment advice and behavioral husbandry advice. And it's, it's tough to deal with the situations where the animals just in an environment that is just inadequate in every single way. And there's just, there's just no behavioral husbandry fix that's going, it's just a bandaid on a bullet wound kind of thing, you know, and it's, um, how, how does, how do you guys deal with those kind of situations and what do you, what's your sort of thought process when, when you run into that? Yeah, we certainly do see that a lot. And we're very aware that, yeah, we don't want to put, as you say, a, a band-aid, as you say, American term on, um, 
uh, on something that's that's not going to be able to be fixed essentially so we have um, a top-down as well as a bottom-up approach so the work that I was doing in Vietnam for example that was very much a bottom-up I was working on the ground with the keepers we were implementing a lot of changes but then at the same time we do as an organization work bottom-down we work with the curators and the directors uh, and we even work on legislation changes where we can um, and that kind of thing um, and and we make sure that yeah as, as I said before the decisions are all based around welfare from the top down as well um, uh, the other thing that we do is uh, we kind of make very strategic um, facility-wide but then also membership-wide um, uh, changes particularly when it comes to welfare standards um, so we work with a lot of uh, membership uh, organizations uh, such as Caesar, Jaza, all those kind of um, organizations and we work with them to um, increase the standards um, that they're talking about and um, increase their own welfare standards and um, to improve animal welfare and and then talk them through how to assess it accurately. Um, so we do a lot of welfare audit training um, and that will empower the, the keepers at the keeper level, but also higher levels as well. Um, curators and directors and managers um, to all be able to accurately and scientifically and strategically assess welfare. Um, that is that is happening in a particular facility or indeed um, an, an organisation or wide, um, uh, yeah, kind of situation. And then that way we can uh, be really strategic about uh, the welfare improvements that we make and make sure that it isn't just bringing in a little bit of enrichment, making sure that these uh, changes that we're implementing are, are long term and that they can continue after we've left the country. Yeah, and that's and that's always the biggest thing, especially with these sort of uh, consulting projects, is making sure you know that these you can deliver all the recommendations that you want, but unless there's real change, you know, that is continuously being inspired and that sort of roadmap is being followed uh, that you've laid out, it's because uh, you know it's a especially in a lot of the zoos, uh, you know, in 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 North America, and I'm sure all over the world, like there's busy seasons and, and, you know, things, things sort of like, they're always, there's always the next project. And it's, it's hard to really be always focusing on the animal welfare of the animals that you currently have. And um, whereas there's big capital projects coming in and, and all sorts of things like that. So yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's really great. And, and I'm, I'm just based on some of the projects that uh, wild welfare that I've seen that you definitely have a huge impact on, on some of those animals that are in those, situations that might not be um conducive to their you know welfare um so that's that's really great so well, uh, the, the, yeah, the other thing that we try and do is um we're always trying um be very collaborative about it so you can come into a place that might not have the best standard of welfare and you can go in you can criticize it and you can leave and nothing will change um yeah. so if we're very collaborative about it we're all about forming these partnerships um providing support and guidance where it's needed um, and yeah, making sure that everybody feels supported and that we can move forward together um, in a really collaborative manner. It's uh, we always say collaboration is key, and it certainly does um, provide the results that we're after. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's it, it's so much easier to just be you know like you you guys shouldn't have this animal and then kind of walk away kind of thing because it, it's yeah it's so much but it's so much more productive and and. Uh, you know, you can really inspire change, not just for that animal, but for future animals that this facility 
uh, might be having. And sometimes, especially if you're working on legislation, you know, you're, you're inspiring change for uh, potentially an entire uh, region or country or something like that. So that's, uh, yeah, that's definitely uh, an amazing thing to be involved in. So uh, as an animal welfare field manager, that's that's an interesting job title that I feel like a lot of people are, uh, especially now with all the legislation that is changing uh, around animal welfare uh, and an animal welfare being the sort of forefront of a lot of facilities. That's a, you know, a really interesting job. I'd love to hear like a sort of day in the life and what what that job, wh what your job title really means and what what you actually uh, uh, do? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I've never really come across another animal welfare field manager. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe one day I will. If you're out there, give me a shout. Um, but yeah, essentially, uh, so I work from home. So a lot of my role is quite office based in terms of uh, putting together um, a lot of the resources and a lot of the reports and a lot of the, the kind of work that we're trying to push forward. Um, and at the moment, I also do a lot of the comms side of things as well. So I'm managing a lot of our comms schedule um, to just get the message of wild welfare out there. Um, but a big part of my um, projects is uh, the e-learning program, which I'm sure we'll mention in a minute, but um, putting together uh, a lot of aspects behind that. So managing the translations, managing the program as a whole. Um, it does take a lot of management, um, uh, getting it out there to the facilities that might be able to utilize it. Um, forming lots of connections that way and also doing research into how it is impacting animal welfare in various ways. Um, so that's a big part of my role. Um, if I am out in country, then um, it is a bit different. So uh, I might be helping out uh, with uh, conducting uh, welfare audit training. Um, so I might be training other, other people to uh, be able to effectively audit uh, facilities. Um, I might be delivering other forms of training workshops. I might be enrichment workshop, it might be um, all sorts of other different aspects. Um, and then we usually pack a lot into um, a, a visit to a country, so uh, to a project country. So it might be having meetings with um, potential partners. Uh, so last time I was, out, I was out in Vietnam, for example, we met up with um, the WildAC team who are now helping to translate our e-learning program. Uh, so a lot of these kind of partnerships are really uh, useful and beneficial. Um, and then it might also be just uh, doing a lot of kind of networking. Um, it might be conference attendance, um, doing talks about some of our projects, all that kind of thing. Um, making sure that we get a lot of uh, communication out about the visit that we're doing um, and all of that whilst battling jet lag. So <laughs> <laughs> it can be quite challenging. Um, we do also conduct our own welfare audits um, of facilities upon invitation. So it's always if a facility would like to be audited by us, then we can do that. So sometimes I help with that. Um, and uh, yeah, doing lots and lots of other things. So um, it's a very varied role, um, but uh, it, it's one that I certainly uh, don't think I could ever get bored of. <laughs> yeah, that's that's amazing. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Um, yeah, so since you, you mentioned it uh, a few times there, um, the uh e-learning program is one that i've seen a lot of uh, messaging out about uh, on wild welfare's uh, website um do you want to tell people what that is and you know where they can check it out yeah so um the to give it its full name uh it's the wild about welfare digital education program uh, and it was created in collaboration with the university of edinburgh and the jean machic um, International Centre for Animal Welfare Education uh, and uh, together we uh, collaborated to create this um, 
program it is free to access so many people do check with me and they're like are you sure it's free and we're like yes it's very much a free resource um and yeah basically you've got eight modules all to do with um, animal welfare animal care and husbandry management and how all of these feed into animal welfare um and effectively anyone can undertake this course uh, they can just read through it at their leisure or they can um kind of really do an intensive version of it and um, you've got the eight modules um, and each of them are split into two complementary parts. So you've got the learning content um, and that kind of looks a bit like um, a really uh, engaging uh, booklet source of information um, all to do with that particular module. Uh, and then you do also have uh, at the end of each module, you've got these interactive articulates, as we call them. Uh, they're kind of like uh, quizzes, uh, interactive quizzes where you can uh, test the knowledge that you've just learned um, and you can um, test yourself and have a bit of fun as well. And it was also an opportunity to um, introduce more um, uh, more visuals uh, to the mix as well. So we were able to add videos in there, uh, which we weren't able to do for the learning documents and that kind of thing. So it's a really consolid um, a really great way to consolidate all your learning um, uh, regarding animal welfare and apply it as well. So throughout the, um, the content, um, both the quizzes and the um, learning modules themselves, we've got lots of reflective activities. So uh, lots of um, quick questions for you to kind of sit and reflect on. We've got lots of scenario-based activities, all of these things to encourage applied, um, well, learning and then application of that learning to uh, a facility um, or, or to animals in general. And we get loads and loads of feedback um, from across the world, which is brilliant. It's currently been used in over 52 countries, which is awesome. Wow. Uh, and um, yeah, we get loads of feedback uh, and, and people are changing their management practices, not only with their animals that might be um, that they currently look after, but also their pets. We've got uh, students who want to look after animals in the future who are already saying that this was a great kind of grounding of knowledge uh, to be able to build on in the future. Um, and yeah, we, we are seeing a lot of husbandry changes uh, because of it as well. And the whole idea of it is to um, uh, really empower people to take that knowledge um, that they might not have had access to before because accessibility is can be an issue particularly with animal welfare science a lot of it is produced in english uh, and it might be behind uh, membership barrier walls or um or that kind of thing so we want to provide this information make it as accessible as possible to as many people as possible and uh, and yeah uh, create a lot of positive welfare changes through knowledge acquisition yeah no that's that's amazing and and i've uh, i've seen the uh, the program and it's it's absolutely amazing. There's tons of amazing free resources in there, and it is free, which it doesn't seem like it should be free. You know, a lot of these free uh, modules you do like they're there's they're a lot of fluff and you don't really. But this is there's a lot of substance to this course, and uh, you know, especially if you're getting into the field. Um, you know, you're a, a new zookeeper, uh, or, or you've been zookeeping for a long time. I think there's something for everybody in there and there's some amazing resources, not just for the individual, but for entire, uh, institutions, uh, to use. And, and that's, it's amazing that you guys are, you know, translating it into other languages because yeah, that's a huge barrier for people. And, uh, I was able to contribute a, a small, uh, infographic and it ended up being translated into like six different languages which was oh, absolutely we're up to amazing now. We're up oh, to nine. Just absolutely <laughs> that's that's amazing yeah so uh 
yeah, it's it's amazing what um, uh, the contacts and and some of the resources that you're uh, able to able to put out. It's uh, it's pretty great because that is, yeah, that's a I wouldn't even know where to start to get it translated into nine different languages. So um, well, yeah, uh, with with your enrichment roadmap, which we are very grateful for, um, that itself is in nine languages. With uh, the e-learning program itself, it's currently in English and Japanese. Um, it's about to be launched in Vietnamese, and we're working on um, other translations in the future as well. So yeah, again, accessibility is always key for us. We always wanted to make it as accessible as possible. And again, free. Yeah, free. And that's the biggest accessibility challenge, you know? So yeah. um, no, it's it's absolutely amazing. I would definitely recommend uh, recommend people to check it out. And I'll have a link to it in the uh, show notes so um, you can access it directly. So, um, so do you have any advice for people looking to deliver better, more effective animal welfare practices and to you know increase the animal welfare of the uh, animals they're working for i know it's a pretty broad question but i'd love to hear your sort of off the top of your head thoughts yeah i think my my biggest advice is to be a lifelong student always like never assume that you know everything always be a sponge always take in more information yeah. always process it challenge things that you might have known in the past um, that that might actually not be the case this time around. Um, and we know um, that animal welfare as a science is constantly changing and evolving. So what I learned at university um, is is different now to kind of what we, we know to be the situation. And it's it's one of those cases where if you, you're always striving to learn more and understand more, you know, uh, networking, attending conferences, um, doing your own research, always kind of reading up on, on that kind of thing, then we can really apply all of that to um, our husbandry practices, our daily routines, all of that kind of thing. And I just think if you if you take all of that on board, you it starts to become almost like a part of you and you don't even sit there and consider anymore. You just kind of go, oh, okay, so that that is because of that. So I'll change that. And that's actually a better thing. So, and yeah, it just becomes one of those things that you're not even really aware of anymore. Um, so yeah, definitely be a lifelong student um, and uh, never assume that you know everything because us as humans, we are always learning throughout the entirety yeah. of our lives. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's an excellent, uh, some excellent advice because it, it is, it's, it's amazing how quickly, uh, like not only the, the science around animal welfare, but a lot of the standards um, are how quickly they're changing and how, uh, with what we what we're learning and you have to be you have to be a, a lifelong student or you'll you'll fall behind in in less than a year you know that's what it feels like at least <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah it's uh so yeah that's that's great advice i always think people uh especially on the outside uh when they're not involved in animal care they uh they don't realize the effort that it actually takes to ensure a lot of especially exotic animals ensure that they have uh, adequate welfare you know it, it it takes a team of people it takes full-time staff looking and looking for problems and anticipating problems and it, it takes an immense amount of time and i feel like people don't realize how much you have to really invest to make sure that you're sort of up to snuff with a lot of these you know new modern standards and and the science that we're currently learning because yeah you have to you know you have to seek out this knowledge and you have to be continuously on the sort of cutting edge of what's what's happening because yeah it is well, it's we evolving like to say, all the time. 
we like to say how um, uh, being proactive rather than reactive is is a yeah. great way to improve welfare because um, you're actually anticipating problems, as you say, but you're preventing them from happening before they happen. So, um, yeah, having that kind of mindset really does help. Oh, absolutely. Because the amount of resources it takes to correct an animal welfare problem is significantly yeah. more than it takes to anticipate and avoid that animal welfare problem. And in in order to to do that effectively, you really need to have those protocols in place and that team in place to be like really understanding what this the day in the life of this animal is every single day. Because if you're just working an eight hour shift as a zookeeper, uh, you're only getting a fraction of what's what makes up 24 hours of this animal's life. And, um, you know, if there's like, it's easy for a lot of things to slip through the cracks and you don't even realize. And then pretty soon it's been a couple months of those things slipping through the cracks and then these problems happen. And then you have this big problem on your hands. Whereas, you know, having these protocols in place where you're observing the animal, you understand what the 24 hours looks like for them over a long period of time you know, that's, you can see these problems before they, before they start for sure. Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, so what, what do you think the biggest sort of mistake or, uh, obstacle you think, uh, people have and people make uh, when it comes to animal welfare? I'm not sure if it's the biggest, but it's certainly one that's been on my mind recently. I've uh, just uh, written a presentation about it. Um, it's actually people mistaking animal care for animal welfare. And not really realizing that they're two different concepts and it's something that i was guilty of when i was a keeper i kind of had this assumption that um i'd done all the jobs that i'd been asked to do my animals enclosures were clean they were fed they you know were free of injuries all that kind of thing and therefore I'd, I'd done my job and therefore the animals were happy but learning actually that welfare is much more about what an animal is experiencing and how it's coping with its environment and it's all the uh, conditions that it's it's got in terms of a, a captive life then um, that once you kind of switch your mindset to that, it's, it's, it kind of highlights uh, a lot more changes that you can make and ensuring that those opportunities, so behavioral opportunities, um, you know, nutritional um, opportunities based around behavior, going into each of those five domains um, and making sure that those opportunities are always there um, through your care practices and just realizing yeah. that there's that nuance between the two. And they do certainly feed into each other, but they are two different concepts. Um, and I've had that discussion uh, quite a lot. Um, I actually uh, recently asked a few people um, what their own definitions of welfare were. And it was interesting to see the differences um, and what people thought that it was, um, and particularly across different uh, regions of the world as well. It's quite interesting to see. Yeah, no, that would be that would be really interesting. And and yeah, I think this is a conversation that's happening, um, you know, especially uh, like what I see in, uh, you know, my neck of the woods it's it's a huge this is a big conversation that's happening at a bunch of of big zoos uh small zoos this is it's really a concept that people uh need to be pushing and people need to be understanding in order to as we said like keep up with these these new this new science of animal welfare because uh yeah it's 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 something that that takes a lot of effort you know as we were talking about and um it's it's something that needs to be a sort of separate entire discipline uh in order to be uh to encompass all the research that's that's been done and um yeah so that's that's uh that's really interesting um so you you mentioned this is a little bit off topic here but uh, you mentioned you you travel to a lot of exotic places 
Um, and you mentioned that you have a perplexing phobia of snakes. Uh, that is correct, yes. Love, love to hear more about that. Uh, yeah, so I have what's called aphidiophobia, which is a very intense aversion to snakes. Um, I will say now that fears and phobias are very, very different things. Uh, and I actually have a massive healthy respect for snakes uh, because I know that they're very integral to biodiversity uh, and a healthy environment um, and that kind of thing. Uh, my issue is I always just say that the wiring in my brain regarding snakes is just a little bit different than everybody else's. It doesn't matter what the species of snake is. It could be a baby grass snake um, found here in the UK, or it could be yeah. you know, a massive king cobra out in, in Asia somewhere. Um, I will have the same response. Um, and it is basically a panic attack brought on by seeing a snake. Um, and this isn't through naivety. I actually realized when I was eight years old that I had this aversion to snakes and I tried to correct that um, by researching around snakes as much as I could. I've still got this uh, little book that I used to carry around about snakes. Um, and I, I certainly go out and try and um, uh, find snakes sometimes in the wild to try and um, uh, be able to control the panic attack space around them. Uh, I've had extensive therapy um, regarding the phobia and uh, it seems pretty stubborn. It does seem here to stay. It's quite amusing going out in um, uh, project countries. As you say, I work a lot in Asia where there's a very high prevalence of wild snakes. And as well as that, I might have to assess the welfare of snakes in captive situations as well. So it's quite an anxiety inducing situation yeah, for me. I um, I also go out there with my um, uh, colleague who is a herpetological expert, so he loves snakes. Oh, <laughs> so it's okay. a kind of chalk and cheese situation. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things um, that I definitely try to not let it impact my job. I didn't when I was a keeper. Um, I used to have to look after snakes. I could never strike feed them, but I would um, have to uh, kind of uh, put temperature gauges in there to make sure that their temperatures um, were up to scratch um, and make sure that they were happy and healthy in other ways. Um, and actually one of the zoos I used to work at had a very high prevalence of wild snakes as well. Thankfully, I never bumped into one, um, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that I'm very aware of. Um, I never pass it on to other people. Uh, I always make sure that people understand that um, snakes are fantastic and they're very well, um, very much needed in our environment. And as well as that, they have welfare needs as well. And so, so, few, so few people seem to really get this, um, particularly kind of members of the public and things. They, you know, a lot of them might be aversive to them, not because of a phobia, but just because they don't really know that much about them. And then I'll say something to them like, well, did you know that snakes don't actually have eyelids? So if they're in uh, a kind of box that has continuous light on there, they can't get away from it. And they go, oh, I never thought of that before. So it's, yeah, it's it's one thing that I make sure that I never pass on. I've worked with a lot of uh, kids and made sure that they walk away loving snakes. Um, and the more that I've thought about it, the more it is strange that I ended up working with animals when I have an aversion to this particular species. Um, but yeah, it's just something in my brain. We don't really know how it started. It's not genetic. Um, I've never really had a particularly bad experience with snakes. Um, it's just the way that my brain is wired, really. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so no. Strange. Yeah, and, and thank you for uh, going into detail about that. And the, the reason why I wanted to ask that question and uh, highlight that is because, uh, you know, as you as you mentioned, 
there's so many animals out there that you know people might not be as interested in working with uh, as a, as a zookeeper, you know, and and quite often as a zookeeper, you're working in areas where a, where a variety of animals are, and just because you you you're not that interested in an animal or you're you're actually scared of an animal doesn't mean that they don't have important welfare needs and they Absolutely. need to be at the forefront of your mind. And I, I guarantee, at least in my experience, every animal that I've been, you know, quote unquote, not excited to work with has surprised me with, you know, what a fantastic natural history they have and all of these opportunities for, um, you know, bringing that out of them. And, and it, they're, I've, I've never worked with an animal that I've been disappointed with working with, you know, they're, they're all great in their own way. And, and they all have their own individual welfare needs. So I think it's, I think it's outstanding that, you know, you have this uh, pretty intense phobia of snakes, but it's still something that's at the forefront of your mind, you know, their welfare. So I think that's that's an awesome example for a lot of keepers out there that are, you know, in the same boat or uh, just not really interested in uh, in these sort of underrepresented animals. Um, well, well, we always find uh, a lot of, you know, the charismatic megafauna or you, your big, large mammals um, that yeah. people get most excited about. But um, we do always try and, you know, with our messaging and with our infographics and all that kind of thing, include um, all the other animals. And something that I quite often do for comms for Halloween is um, kind of, you know, put a photo of a snake and a rat and a spider and all these animals associated with being scary and with Halloween and saying that they have welfare needs too. And they do. And we just need to, yeah. to learn how to to meet them yeah no absolutely that's 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 great um <laughs> so uh where can people find wild welfare and sort of see what you're up to is there anything you'd like people to to check out um any sort of parting messages from from wild welfare um well we are um we've got a, a website wildwelfare.org um, where you can kind of learn uh, more about who we are, what we do. Um, we are on across pretty much every social media channel aside from TikTok. So we're on Facebook, yeah. Instagram, uh, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Um, if you're after uh, resources in particular, then our YouTube channel is a great place for um, listening to our previous webinars. Uh, and we do also have loads of resources, including the wonderful enrichment roadmap from yourself um, on the website as well. Uh, and obviously the e-learning program too. So um, yeah, do um, check us out, give us a follow. And um, and yeah, we, we love connecting with, uh, with new people who are as passionate about animal welfare as we are. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's excellent, and the resources, as I said, are are fantastic. I will uh, link all of the social medias and website. I haven't got on TikTok either. I just don't even know what I would do. You know, I, I, I yeah. So uh, yeah, I will link to everything. Um, thank you so much, Sarah, for for coming on. And uh, as I said, I I absolutely love Wild Welfare, and I've uh, you know had some awesome opportunities to to work with you guys, and I'm sure there'll be. Uh, more in the future. So uh, thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you very much for having having me. It's been great to uh, to finally meet and uh, and to catch up. Yeah, thank you so much. All right. Uh, until next time, guys. Uh, see you later.